0: You are listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com. You know, it's been said that the thing that makes a life truly rich are the relationships in that life. I've experienced that myself, that you can live in the most unattractive, uncomfortable place in the world, but if you have good relationships there, that can be the most wonderful place in the world. You know, but probably the most intense relationships that we have here on earth are experienced in family. Intense in the sense that the people in your family, the relationships you have with them, they can be the richest, most fulfilling relationships of your life. They can be the relationships which provide the most joy and fulfillment and love and affirmation. That's what we celebrate on Mother's Day. But family relationships can also be the source of our deepest pains. They can be a source of hurts and wounds. And all that just to say that these are the most intense relationships that we experience here on church, our, 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 here on earth. Our relationships with family. Uh, and, And you know what they say about family, right? That you get to choose your friends and you get to choose your pets and you get to choose your dentist, but you don't get to choose your family. And there are many of us who have people in our families who we wouldn't necessarily have chosen to be connected to or related to if it was up to us. We wouldn't have picked them as our friends if we were out there picking friends. But yet we're related to them, and there's nothing we can do about it now, right? I mean, they're family. What are you going to do? Whether you would have chosen them as friends or not, now you have this bond with them that's different than friendship. It's tighter than friendship, You see, if you have a difference of opinion with a friend or or a friend does something that hurts you, you can just stop being friends with them. But you can't do that with family, can you? You're still related to them. You're bound to each other by something that goes beyond your job or your hobbies. You have a common history. You have people in common who you share. Maybe you have the same mom or you have the same grandmother, Family relationships can be messy, right? They can be wonderful, but they can also be difficult. I was talking to uh, someone recently, and they were describing family relationships like this, that if you look at them up close in the moment, oftentimes they're pretty ugly. But if you zoom out and you look at them as a whole, they're absolutely beautiful, you know, at any moment, think about your own family life. Things are messy, right? At any given moment, somebody's upset, somebody's yelling, two people aren't talking to each other. It's ugly in the moment. But when you zoom out and you look at the big picture, it's incredibly beautiful. What, what all's going on in that relationship? And so the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came. He came to live and to die on a cross, and he came to rise again. Why? So that we might become the children of God. So that we who at one time were separated from God, we we were even enemies of God, he made us adopted children. He came and adopted us so that he might be our father and we might be his children. In other words, Jesus came to make us family, He came to make us family with him, and he came to make us family with each other. And that is God's vision for us as disciples of Christ. You realize that Jesus doesn't say, here's what I want to do with all you guys who who follow me. I want you all to be friends. I want you to be buddies. I want you to share all the same interests. That's not what he says, is it? He said, here's my vision for you. Not that you would be friends, but that you would be family. That's the picture of what I've come to make you. And so here in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is laying out for us this countercultural way of living as a disciple of him, he now turns to the topic of relationships and how knowing him will affect our relationships in several areas. And as he does this, he interestingly uses words which paint a picture, and the picture is a picture of a family. So the title of today's message is Family Dynamics. And as we'll see, these family dynamics are broken down into three relationships, and there's, th- there's three family words that are used, and it represents three relationships that we're going to talk about. First, we're going to see brothers, then we're going to see the father, and then we're going to see others. So brothers, father, other. Let's get into it in verse 1. Judge not that you not be judged. Judge not that you not be judged. Now, this is without question probably like the most well-known, most often quoted verse in the Bible, in the whole world, right? Like people who don't know anything that the Bible says, they definitely know this verse, don't judge so that you won't be judged yourself. And what they take this to mean is that Jesus is kind of commanding a universal acceptance of all kinds of lifestyles, any kind of behavior, and any kind of teaching. That we should just kind of mind our own business and not say anything about what somebody else is doing or uh, what somebody else says or does. And people love to quote this verse all the time. I was remembering myself that before I became a believer, somebody tried to tell me that I needed to turn to Jesus, and I, I wrote them a letter and said this verse. So I used it myself, right? And people love to quote this verse. Anytime somebody criticizes something they do, anytime anybody gives them advice or says something that they're doing, needs to change. You know, like, hey, friend, you shouldn't drink and drive. Hey, man don't judge me. Don't you know that's in the Bible, right? Like, hey, you know, you probably shouldn't smoke cigarettes when you're pregnant. Hey, man, back off. Don't judge me. That's what Jesus said, bro, right? Like, hey, your way of living, that thing you're doing, it's wrong. Hey, you can't judge me or else God's going to judge you and you don't want that, so you better lay off me right? Mind your own business. I think that mind your own business is really the great mantra of American society, right? This is the, this is our uh, defining mantra. I'll do my thing, you do your thing, and you need to be accepting of whatever I do, otherwise you're judgmental, and being judgmental is the cardinal sin, right? There's nothing worse in our society than being judgmental, uh, the thing is, though, that that's not what Jesus is saying, is it, right? And, and how do I know that? Maybe you say, well, it sure seems like that's what he's saying. How do I know that's not what he's saying? Well, here's how. Later on in the same chapter, here in the Sermon on the Mount, almost in the same breath, right? Jesus calls us to evaluate our own lives and other people's lives based on the fruit of their lives. In other words, we're called to examine some people's lives. And Jesus on examining some people's lives, he says, some people are sheep, which is good, and and he says, but some people are wolves. And we say, hey Jesus, that's kind of judgmental of you, right? Calling people wolves, you probably should lay off people. You're not allowed to say that. Don't you know Jesus? Judge not, lest you be judged. Uh, He goes even further. In verse 6, Jesus says, some people aren't just wolves. Some people are dogs, right? Dirty Dogs. And then he goes on even further. He says, and you know what? Some people are pigs. And then verse 17, he says, some people are like healthy trees, and some people are like diseased trees. Now, what if somebody was to tell you that about your life? You know what? You're kind of like a tree, but like one of those diseased ones. That's you. And, uh, you know, and he says, I can tell this by examining the fruit of your life. You see, when Jesus talks about not passing judgment on others, he is not really advocating for universal acceptance of any kind of lifestyle or behavior or teaching. So, So here's the thing as Christians, a Christian, a Christian is called to unconditional love. But I need you to know this, that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval. So Christians are called to unconditional love, but Christians are not necessarily called to unconditional approval. In fact, we're definitely not called to unconditional approval. Here's a here's thing, uh, here's a quote that I think is really spot on from a well-known uh, leader and speaker. He says this, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. The second is that to love someone means that you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. You know, this is an issue that many people in our society are confused about. The assumption is that if you... Uh, in order to love somebody, that means approving of whatever they do. But let me tell you something. I really hope this is something that sets you free today to love other people. You really can love somebody Uh, who does things that should not be approved of. It's absolutely possible. And you know why it's possible and how I know it's possible? It's possible because that is what God does for us all the time. You realize that? That's how God loves us. He loves us even though sometimes we do things that should not be approved of and that he doesn't approve of. You really can love a person who does things that should not be approved of. That's what it means to be called to love like Jesus. You know, you moms in here, you know exactly what that's all about, right? You do it all the time with your kids. They do things that you don't approve of. But, but, but does that make you stop loving them? Absolutely not. Not one little bit. We always try to make that very clear to our children. We try to delineate the difference, right? Between saying, I may not approve of what you're doing. I may even discipline you for what you're doing, but that doesn't mean that I don't love you. It doesn't change the fact that I love you. And as kids get older, the issues tend to become more serious, right? What if your child growing up, right? What if they choose a lifestyle that you don't approve of? What if they don't continue in the faith which you raised them up in? Does that mean you're going to stop loving them just because you disagree with their choices? Absolutely not, right? You, You still love them with your whole heart, And that's how God loves us too. God's word tells us that God loved us even when we didn't walk in his ways. Even when we lived in rebellion against him. He didn't approve of the things we were doing. He wanted us to change our ways. But yet he loved us more than we can even begin to grasp. Those people who Jesus calls pigs and wolves and dogs. Does Jesus love those people? Absolutely. Does he approve of what they're doing? Not at all. You see, to disagree with what someone's doing, to not approve of someone's choices or actions or lifestyles, that doesn't mean you hate them. It doesn't mean you're afraid of them. It is absolutely possible to love a person fully and and yet not approve of what they do. You can say, I don't approve of your conduct. I believe the way you're living is wrong, but I love you. Another buzzword in our modern society is the word tolerance. It's like Everybody's favorite word, right? And Christians are often accused of being intolerant. That's something they like to say about Christians. But let me tell you this. We Christians, we absolutely believe in tolerance. Absolutely. The issue is that people have confused the word tolerance with, uh, with the idea of approval. See? People have acu- uh, confused tolerance and approval. Tolerance is saying, I may not agree with you, but I'm going to tolerate you right? And we absolutely believe in that as Christians. I may not agree with you, but I'm not going to persecute you. I'm not going to kill you. In fact, you know what? I will even fight for the right for you to live your life the way you are living it, but I don't approve of it. I disagree with it, but I'm going to tolerate you. Approval is saying, I think the way you are living your life is good great, right? It's good. Yay for you. You should do it some more, right? And that's something we cannot always do. In fact, that's something that nobody does, right? Even people who uh, maybe disagree on some of our values as Christians, maybe they have different values, yet they would still say they don't think that any way that anybody lives, like any possible way of living is good, right? So nobody does that. We, we can't legitimately say as Christians and we shouldn't legitimately say as Christians that everything that everybody does is good. We have to say that some things are good and some things are bad. Some things are, are good and some things are evil, right? But we can say no matter what, God loves you He loves those people, we love them, and the promise of the gospel is true for that person as well, that if they'll turn to Christ and put their faith in him, God will transform them from the inside out. He'll start with their heart, and he'll transform from the inside out. So then what is it that Jesus is teaching here when he says, judge not lest you be judged? well, it's obviously not about having convictions or saying that things are right or wrong, then, then what is it that he's talking about here? What he's talking about is having a judgmental attitude, being a judgmental Jerry. That's what he's talking about, right? A judgmental attitude which is void of love and which carries with it a sense of superiority over others that seeks to make yourself feel better uh, by putting other people down right? Now, now how are some ways that we break this commandment? Because I think that as Christians, we should own it, right? We should just own it, that sometimes we break this commandment. In fact, a lot of times we break this commandment. So here's, here's some ways in which I believe that we break this commandment, in which we do judge others in ways that aren't right. We break this commandment when we think the worst of people, when you assume the worst about that person, when you think the worst of them. We break this commandment when we only speak to other people about their faults. When we only speak about people about their faults. We've all got faults, right? But when we only talk to people or talk about people regarding their faults, that's breaking this command. Another way we break this command is when we judge a person's entire life by only its worst moments. Have you ever done that? I mean, all of us have moments in our lives that we're deeply ashamed of, that we don't want Anybody to know, and we certainly wouldn't want anybody to judge our life based on those worst moments. So we break this command when we judge an entire life based on only its worst moments. But we break this command also when we presume to judge other people's hidden motives, right? When we assume or presume that certain people have certain motives for doing certain things that they do and they're evil. We can't know that. God knows that and he'll take care of that, but we don't know that. So Jesus walked into this upper room and uh, he had shown up for dinner that evening with his disciples. In fact, it was the last supper that he was going to share with his disciples because in just a few hours time, he was going to be betrayed and he would be arrested. He would ultimately be crucified that night. But as Jesus entered that upper room where dinner had been prepared, instead of being greeted by the sweet smell, the aroma of the meal that had been prepared, it was another smell which confronted him and almost hit him like a ton of bricks, right, as he walked through the door. You know what the smell was? Feet. Just the right. You come in for dinner, and instead of smelling dinner, you smell feet—dirty, stinky, sweaty feet. Probably you're familiar with that smell. Just try to, you know, remind yourself right now. Get all your senses engaged, as David tells us. Right? It's more than enough to make you lose your appetite. Just that wafting smell of feet mixed with the smell of dinner. It's enough to make you nauseous. And so there are all Jesus' disciples. They're reclining on the floor. They're sitting on cushions, according to the custom of that culture, around a low table around which they were going to eat their meal with their stinky feet dangling way too close to the food that they were about to eat. Now, why were their feet dirty? Well, well, because it was the job of a servant to wash people's feet when they entered a house. But you see, the disciples of Jesus, they frequently argued and debated over which of them was the greatest. And the last thing that any of them wanted was to take on that role of servants. So what does Jesus do? Now you can imagine that as Jesus walks into this scene, what's he feeling? Well, he's probably feeling disgusted. He's disgusted by the smell. He's disturbed by the scene that after three years of walking with these guys every single day, daily discipleship, teaching them his heart for three years, they still don't get it. And none of them are willing to serve each other. So what does Jesus do? Well, recognizing their stink recognizing their uncleanness, recognizing their lack of spirituality, we read there in John 13 that Jesus silently girded himself with a towel and he began to wash their feet himself. You see, don't you see in that the perfect balance there in Jesus? He judged that their feet were smelly and dirty and filthy, that they weren't acting according to his heart. He discerned that, but rather than Putting them down, Jesus knelt down himself and washed their feet. Right? That's the perfect balance in him. This is to be our family dynamic. Right there, what we see in Jesus. Read verse 2 with me if you would. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Our judgment of people is, is wrong when... Uh, we hold other people to a different standard than we hold ourselves to. That's what it means to be hypocritical, by the way. It means that you hold yourself to one standard and you hold other people to a different standard. Uh, You know, our human tendency is to be far more generous ourselves than we are to other people. And that's why Jesus says, he says, with the measure you use, it will be used with you. And that should be a powerful motivation for us to be generous with the amount of love and forgiveness and grace and kindness that we show to other people. I like to think of it like an ice cream scoop, right? There are different sizes of ice cream scoops. You've got those little teaspoons, right? The, like the little ones you use for, uh, you know, even for your kids, for the, the little tea sets. And, and then you've got bigger scoops, of course, right? And when it comes to God, we want him to use the big scoop with us. But in our dealings with other people, our tendency is to get out the little spoon. and here, here's, your, uh, here's your spoonful. There you go. Enjoy, right? But when it comes to God, we want him to use the big scoop. We want him to use a shovel, right? We want him to just get in there and just pile it on. But God says, okay, look, here's how it's going to work. I'll let you choose the scoop and then I'll use the same one that you use, right? The same one that you use with other people, I'll use that same one with you. In other words, if you want God to use the big scoop with you, well, then that means that you need to be using the big scoop with other people when it comes to love and grace and forgiveness and kindness. Read with me, please, from verse three. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So here's this guy. He's got a little speck of sawdust in his eye, and there's this other guy. He's got a board sticking out of his eye, and the guy with the board sticking out of his eye walks up to the other guy, and he says, uh, hey, uh, you got something there in your eye. You want me to, you want me to give you a hand with that, right? It's just a, it's a ridiculous scene that Jesus is painting here. It's it's, it's funny even, this illustration that Jesus is talking about, about how we tend to be so much more gracious and understanding when it comes to ourselves than we are with other people, right? We, we fuss about the small things in other people's lives. We can pick out the speck. We can see it really clearly, and we know how to fix it. But yet we don't deal with the glaring issues in our own lives so often. And like the guy with the plank in his eye, here's the irony, right? The guy walking around with the plank in his eye, do you think anybody else notices that he's got a plank in his eye? Of course. Everybody sees it. He's the only person who seems to have made himself blind to the fact that he has a log sticking out of his own eye, right? And that's how it is. The things that you... Try to ignore in your own life the things that you can ignore in your own life. Other people notice them immediately. That's something to take note of. Jesus says, listen, if you've got a huge glaring issue in your own life, you really need to deal with that before you start nitpicking at other people. Now remember, again, the big theme of this section. Jesus is laying out the culture of his kingdom. These are the family dynamics of this new family, this family of disciples of Jesus. And this is how the disciples of Jesus, meaning us as well, how we are to relate to our brothers and sisters. We're not to put each other down to make ourselves look better or feel better. We're not to, or we are to be as gracious with each other as God has been gracious with us. And we are not to be hypocritical, holding ourselves to a lower standard than we hold everybody else to. Verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. After warning us against being judgmental and hypocritical, after encouraging us to show massive amounts of grace to other people, Jesus now gives us a very important counterpoint, right? Because he wants us to be balanced in our thinking, in our behavior, and our attitudes. So here's the counterpoint. He says, look, I want you to be gracious to people. I want you to love people. I don't want you to be judgmental. But here's the facts. Some people are dogs, That's a fact, right? Now, dogs in that society, they didn't view them the way people view dogs here in Boulder County, right? In Boulder County, dogs are like kids, right? You dress them up, you buy... I was in Aspen once, and I saw a hat for a dog. A leather hat cost $300, right? So um, dogs in that society were viewed very differently than we view dogs in our society, right? They didn't view dogs as fuzzy pets, or even man's best friend, dogs were rabid, mangy, dangerous animals that ran in packs and attacked your children, right? They like picked off the little ones. And if you've been to third world countries, uh, you've probably seen this. A lot of times in third world countries, they have problems with street dogs, and they're dangerous, and they really are. I mean, uh, we experience it many times. You walk in home and, and you can't walk down your own street because there's a pack of street dogs there. That's the sense in which Jesus is talking about dogs. And he says, There are people out there who are like dogs. They're like that. They're bad dudes, basically. And he says, And you know what? There are some people out there who are like pigs. So when we lived in Hungary, you know, like everybody kept pigs. They would, you know, eat. They have one pig that would be like their food for a year, right, for a family. And so we saw a lot of pigs. And you learn about pigs that they're very dangerous animals, actually. You do not want to get in a pen with a pig. Pigs bite, and they'll mess you up, right? They're very dangerous. Not to mention they're they're, um, dirty. And for Jews, right, pigs are the epitome of what it means to be unclean. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying... Look, I want you to love people. I want you to be super gracious to people. I don't want you to be judgmental. I want you to love people even if you don't approve of the things that they're doing. But I don't want you to be naive about people either, right? This is so important to have this balance because there are some bad guys out there right? And and while you're being gracious and wanting to not be judgmental and you wanting to love all people, you also need to have discernment. You need to have discernment to discern if a person is someone who's going to hurt you and destroy that which is precious to you. Before you invite the homeless guy to move into your house with your kids, you might need to think about these kind of things, right? You want to be gracious, you want to be helpful, you want to be loving, but yet You also want to have discernment. So this is a very great counterpoint he's making here, that loving people doesn't require you to throw discernment out the window. We should seek to be merciful. We should seek to be forgiving. We should seek to be slow to judge. But on the other hand, we also seek to discern the true character of people as much as we can by examining their lives. Now, of course, we can't know their heart and we can't know really what's going on. God knows that. But as much as we can, we do still examine people's lives based on their actions actions excuse me not for the purpose of judging them or to have a sense of superiority over them but in order to identify where they're at you know are they truly receptive to the gospel are they being transformed by God or or maybe do they even pose a danger so loving not being judgmental it doesn't mean throwing discernment out the window Okay, so now after talking about the family dynamics between brothers and sisters, now Jesus turns to how we as children of God should relate to our heavenly Father. That's the second dynamic here, the Father. From verse seven. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? So he's saying here, how should we, as those who have become children of God, how should we relate to our Heavenly Father? Well, we should ask, we should seek, we should knock, we should know that we have a Father who absolutely loves us and He will withhold from us no good thing. You know, Psalm 84, verse 11, it says this, The Lord is our sun and our shield. He gives us gl- grace and glory and no good thing. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now, I find that interesting because Jesus says the same thing here, that he won't withhold any good thing from his children. It says here, Jesus is saying, God, like a good father, he's not going to withhold good things from his children. If they ask for something good, he delights to give it to them. No good thing will he withhold from us, his kids. Now, does God withhold some things from us? Absolutely, he does, yeah. You know, there are things which God forbids. He says, this is forbidden. Is he withholding that from us? Yes. Or sometimes do we ask for things and God says, no, right? Sometimes, sometimes you beg God for something, convinced that you need that thing, and you say, God, if you never give me anything else ever, ever again, just give me this one thing, please. And yet, he doesn't give it to you. What are you supposed to do with that, right? Like, how are you supposed to deal with that kind of situation? Well, here's how. By understanding that your God is a loving father and he knows everything. He sees the whole picture. He knows the future and he loves you completely. And he will withhold no good thing from you. And so it leads you to this conclusion that if God would withhold something from me, if he is withholding something from me, if he does say no to my request, you, you have to make this conclusion that, well, then he must have known in his perfect knowledge that that thing would ultimately not have been good for me right now. But sometimes God wants you to be persistent. And so there's another important balance here, right? Between saying, God, I trust you. I'm going to ask, I'm going to seek, I'm going to knock, but I'm going to trust you. That you will withhold no good thing from me. So if you do withhold something from me, I trust that you saw it as not good for me. But then here's the other side of that, right? God wants you to be persistent. Do you see the progression there? Asking, seeking, knocking. I have kids and my kids love cookies. And so here's how they get cookies, right? They start out by asking, hey, can I have a cookie? And then when I ignore them, you know what they do is they they take it to the next level. And they say, well, fine. If you're not going to give us a cookie, we're going to go find some cookies, right? And so they start seeking out the cookies. And then I find my kids in the pantry pulling stuff off the shelves. They're on top of the counter digging through the cabinets. They're in the garage pulling stuff out. They're under the bed looking for cookies. They're ripping up the carpet to find out if we stashed them under there. They're searching. They're pursuing. They're very persistent at going after those cookies. And if that doesn't work, you know what they do? They start knocking They'll go to the neighbor's house, and they'll knock on his door. Hey, you got any cookies? Or they'll knock on your bathroom door. You ever have them do that? Hey, come on out. I need some cookies, right? They'll knock on your bedroom door in the middle of the night. That's how bad they want those cookies. Don't you see? That's the kind of persistence that God is encouraging us towards here. He wants us to be passionately pursuing things. He's not playing hard to get. Do you realize that? He's not playing hard to get. He wants you to be passionate and to pursue things. And not just give up if things don't immediately work out. This picture of knocking, you know what it it implies? It implies a closed door, doesn't it? Right? I mean, you're not going to knock on an open door. So there's a closed door and you're knocking on the closed door because you want the closed door to open. So sometimes, you know, people's attitudes about things are, hey, this door just seems to be closed all right, I guess I'll just give up. Time to move on. Door's closed. But Jesus is telling us, hey, when it comes to closed doors, hey, don't just give up right away, man. Try knocking on that door. Try pounding on that door. Try kicking that door. See if God will open it for you. Maybe God's closed that door for a reason, or maybe he wants you to keep knocking, keep pushing, keep seeking, and keep asking. Why does God do this to us? If God can do anything, And he can do it whenever he wants. It's not even hard for him. Then why does he make us go through this song and dance of knocking and asking and seeking? You really want to know why? I believe it's because he delights in the dance. He does. He delights in the dance. He delights in the song. And and we don't always love it. We tend to stress out over it. We sweat over it. We get anxious and worried. We lose sleep over it. But God delights in the fact that you're continuously seeking Him. In that situation, you keep coming to Him. And you are completely dependent on Him. And it keeps you on your knees seeking Him. You know, there's so many of us who we only seek God when we absolutely need something. And so our loving Heavenly Father says, if that's what it takes to keep you close to me, well then I guess it's worth it. But know this, no good thing. No good thing according to his definition of what is good for you based on his perfect knowledge, no good thing will he withhold from you. And here's the proof of it. Paul turns us to the gospel in Romans 8.32. And in light of the gospel, Paul says this, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul brings us back to the gospel to remind us of why we can be absolutely confident and certain that God will give us every good thing. Because God did not withhold from us his greatest, his son, his very best, the supreme thing of all the universe, even though it came to him at at such a high cost, even though it caused him pain to do so, he did not withhold him from us, and therefore we can be confident. Because everything else is less than that. Did you see that? Everything else is smaller than that. If he did that, of course he'll do this. Of course he will give you every good thing that you need, that you ask for. So when it comes to our asking and seeking and knocking, if God still says no, then we can rest, and we must rest in that knowledge that our loving Heavenly Father hasn't given us something because He knew that it would not be the best for us ultimately, or at least at this time. And we're going to finish with verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophet's. This is known as the golden rule. You've probably heard it before. So, again, these are the dynamics of, these are the family dynamics of God's kingdom. The Christian counterculture, you know, it's not an individual value system. We live in a society that so much thinks that individuality is really the greatest virtue. The Christian counterculture, though, says, no, this culture, it's not an individual value system. It's not an individual lifestyle. It is a community affair, and it involves relationships. The Christian community is essentially a family. That's what God has done for us through the gospel. He has made us family. And the two strongest elements in this family structure are God as our Father and our fellow Christians as brothers and sisters, but yet there's one other important relationship, and that's this one. That's our relationship with those outside of this family who we long to see brought into this family. So when it comes to how we relate to people in general, if we follow this one rule, we'll basically be on the right track most of the time. However you wish that people would treat you, that's how you should treat them. Now why does that keep us on the right track? Because we absolutely love ourselves, right? And so if we love ourselves and we treat other people the way that we like to be treated, well then we'll be treating them pretty good. If you were to follow that rule, think about how it would affect your actions. You would be extremely generous to people, wouldn't you? Because you love it when people are generous towards you. You would be extremely gracious towards people because, you know, you're very understanding towards yourself. And you'd be incredibly thoughtful because you always remember the things that are important to you. So how do you wish that other people would treat you? That's how you should treat them. And so here in, the, in these first 12 verses of Matthew 7, Jesus has introduced us to these basic relationships. Brothers, father, others. And at the very center of those, by the way, is our relationship with our heavenly father. This is the family dynamic that Jesus wants his disciples to have. On the one hand, it calls us to be incredibly humble, doesn't it? On the one hand, it's, it calls us to this radical humility because it calls us to acknowledge the fact of who we really are before God. That we're really no better than anybody else and therefore we have no right to judge anybody else because we ourselves deserve God's judgment. So on the one hand, it calls us to be extremely humble but on the other hand, it calls us to be incredibly confident. So confident, in fact, that we don't need to tear down others to give ourselves an identity. We don't need to bring others low to make ourselves look better. The reason most people criticize others and tear others down is because it makes them feel better about themselves. Now Jesus is calling us to be so confident in who we are that we're able to deal with the issues in our own lives rather than focusing on what's wrong with other people. That requires a ton of confidence. It's a confidence which enables us to discern between good and bad and right and wrong and yet still love people and not be threatened by them or hate them. It requires incredible confidence because it calls us to trust that our heavenly father loves us and he will always give us what is absolutely best for us, even when it doesn't turn out the way that we kind of planned it would for ourselves. And let me tell you what, this incredible humility and this incredible confidence, there's only one way to get both of those things at the same time, and that is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Because the message of the gospel is this, that you are more sinful and flawed than you even dare to believe, but yet you are more loved by God than you even dare to hope. And when you understand that, when you understand both sides of the gospel, that you are so bad, that you are so broken, that God had to die for you, it was the only way that you could be saved, but yet you are so loved by God that he was glad to die for you. When you understand that, The effect it has on you, it makes you incredibly humble. It brings you low because you recognize who you are before Him. And at the same time, it brings you so high because you can be so confident in Him because of who He has made you in Christ and how much He loves you, how much love and acceptance there is for you in Him. Incredibly humble because you realize you have no basis for judging anyone else. You yourself deserve to be judged. But incredibly humble because you realize uh, that, that you're no better than anybody else. You have flaws. There's no reason for you to think you're better than anybody else. Incredibly humble because you've received grace that you didn't deserve. And at the same time, incredibly confident because the God of the universe chose you. He loves you. He died for you. He left the comfort and the glory of heaven for you. Incredibly confident because you are fully loved and fully accepted by God. Therefore, you can be comfortable in your own skin. You don't have to try to prove yourself incredibly confident about your future because you have a loving heavenly father who has done everything to make you his own and he has proven that there is nothing good that he will ever withhold from you what the sermon on the mount sets out for us is two different kinds of life there's life lived the common way and there's life lived the gospel way the common way that's a well-worn path we see where that goes we've we've had Generation after generation walk down that path. But the gospel way is different, isn't it? It's countercultural, But this is the way of true life. This is the way of true joy and happiness both now and forever. Nothing else can make you so humble and yet so confident. Nothing else can give you this kind of love than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you really take hold of it, it affects all your relationships. Those with your brothers and sisters, those with your Father in heaven, and those with others. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the great gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, how the gospel transforms all of our relationships. It transforms how we relate to each other. It transforms how we see ourselves. It transforms how we relate to you and everybody out there in the whole world. Lord, would you help us that we would treat others the way that we want to be treated? Lord, thank you that that is what you did for us. You treated us better than we deserved. You treated us the way that you would want to be treated. You, you gave yourself for us. Lord, may we give ourselves for you. We want to live out this gospel life that you describe here in the Sermon on the Mount. So Lord, would you enable us to do that by your spirit as we go from this place. And Lord, would you bless all the moms who are here today. And Lord, we pray for those who desire to be moms. Lord, would you give them their, the desire of their hearts. We pray that you'd bless this Mother's Day for all the families in our church. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was brought to you by Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com.